welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome, I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry. and throughout this series we are looking at equality and anti-oppressive practice and we're using the Equality Act in England as a framework. So we started off back in April revisiting the ethics and social work role around fighting discrimination and some of the theories that support this. And each month we're now looking at evidence of inequality around a protected characteristic and thinking about how social workers um, challenge oppression and uphold rights. So last time we were considering race and ethnicity and last time we did podcasts, we also did an extra podcast on working from home. So that was back in July. Didn't have a podcast in August although we are recording this in August. So this is our next equality podcast to go out September and is on religion and belief. Ah, yes. And I'm looking forward to this, Jerry. This should be a really interesting conversation. And uh, to everybody out there, thank you so much for listening to us. And it's really good to see Norway um, coming into the top 10 of countries who are downloading. Thank you very much. And we also have a lot of listeners coming through in Japan, which is really great to see. And um, you also have somebody who's very keen about watching Japan at the moment, because I'm watching the Olympics quite often in the evening. And what a show they're putting on, I think, despite the um, difficulties of it. So that's been great as well. Um, we really hope you enjoy the podcast. Let us know what you think by visiting our website or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast, or you can write to Jerry at Effective Prac, or you can Twitter me, you know, um, at jfox underscore Joe, but I don't use it very often, so I say go with Jerry. And, um, yeah, please do leave reviews on iTunes if you can, um, as they help people find us, and uh, we, we'd love to have new people discovering us. Great. So today we're going to talk about religion and belief with a capital R and a capital B. B, um, as they are in the Equality Act. So it's a protected characteristic. Again, that means you're protected by law from discrimination on these grounds, and that's across England, Wales and Scotland. And in Northern Ireland, there's similar provisions. So the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and I do recommend their website for kind of clear English around what the Equality Act says, um, highlights that the Equality Act says that you mustn't be discriminated against either because you are or aren't of a particular religion you hold or don't hold a particular philosophical belief, or someone thinks that you do, which is discrimination by perception, or you're connected to someone who has a particular religion or belief, which is discrimination by association. Um, it also highlights that religion or belief can mean any religion, which could be an organized huge religion like uh, Christianity or Islam, or a smaller religion. Um, so long as there's kind of clear structures and a belief system, and it also covers non-belief or lack of religion or belief. So, for example, it would protect people if they don't hold a religion, um, but they're discriminated against because of that. Yes, um, th there's some really helpful um, ways to think about this um, in the Equality Act as well. And the first is that the Equality Act says that a philosophical belief must be genuinely held and more than an opinion. So it's got to be cogent, serious, and apply to an important aspect of human life or behavior. 
Um, and a good example here is if an employee believes strongly in man-made climate change and they feel they have a duty to live their life in a way which limits their impact on the earth to help save it for future generations. Um, and that's what they're doing. You know, so you can see that in their day to day behavior, this would be classed as a belief and it would be protected under the Equality Act. So that's kind of helpful for us to start to think about, you know, where what we're looking for there is um, the match, the congruence, isn't it, between the voice belief and the behavior. And the Equality Act also says that the belief must be worthy of respect in a democratic society and not affect other people's fundamental rights. Um, which to me is absolutely critical. And they have another good example here, which is if an employee believes that white people are a superior race to others and tell their colleagues so, this would not be classed as a belief protected under the Equality Act because yeah. that would be discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. So the question of what counts as a belief uh, was tested quite recently in an employment appeal tribunal in England. I believe it was in England, certainly in the UK. Um, and the claimant held gender critical beliefs. So that's um, beliefs around, for example, sex being immutable um, and that sex and gender identity are different. And the tribunal found that that belief was protected um, under this under the Equality Act because it was genuinely held and more than an opinion. Um, and it was kind of cogent and um, kind of structured. Um, so although that was a belief, that is a belief that um, other people would not agree with. Um, some people would, some people wouldn't, and some people would mm. kind of vehemently disagree with it. Still absolutely in, entitled to hold it. Um, and the tribunal talked about what you wouldn't be entitled to have protection for and said that it would have to be something really akin to a kind of totalitarian belief, because essentially you can't protect a belief that would um, yeah, the, the, all of the Equality Act stems from the Convention of Human Rights, and you can't um, use the Human Rights Convention to hold to protect a belief that attacks human rights. It's kind of mm. just doesn't make sense that it doesn't hang together. Essentially, you're using part of the Act to attack another part of the Act, and that just doesn't doesn't work. Um, the other thing that the judgment said that was quite interesting was that holding a belief and being having a protected belief doesn't necessarily mean that you can act on the belief without consequence. So yeah. um, you'd still be subject to the elements of the Equality Act around not discriminating or harassing people um, in places where the Act applies. So in like employment or if, if you're providing services, for example. And I think that's all quite kind of reassuring for social workers because it means mm. that essentially you're living in a society where beliefs can be held and respected, um, but where they also need to be held respectfully. Yes, I, th I think that is absolutely critical for social workers because being able to um, work with everyone and engage respectfully with everyone and uphold their human dignity is what we're striving to do. Um, and we also want to be able to engage with and understand other people's beliefs. And, and this requires us to be actively curious and also to be really well aware of our own blind spots. Um, and for me, using something like um, the seen, unseen, voiced, unvoiced window from the social graces, 
can be really helpful in checking our own beliefs and ideas. So going through the social graces and looking at all those different characteristics and thinking, what what do I really think about this? And, and doing a sense check on yourself. Um, and the other thing I think is is really critical as a social worker is to read widely, read widely and research and really look to get as many different voices surrounding you as you possibly can. And if you're working um, with someone who comes from a different um, belief or religious background from you, remember to actually do some research and reading, but then to individualize it. In other words, even if you know everything about a religion or a belief system, what you don't know is how that person enacts or interprets it. And that's really what social work is striving to understand, is what impact does the religion or belief have on the issues we're exploring? And how can we work with that in a way that will enhance dignity and safety? So, um, you know, that's that's something that I think is really critical. And because as social workers, we will encounter a, a wide range of deeply held beliefs, we actually those two tests that we set out earlier, that the, the Equality Act set out earlier, you know that the um, belief is genuinely held and it's more than an opinion and it um, has to, imply to uh, apply to an important aspect of human life or behaviour, you know, that looking for the congruence between words and deeds and also thinking about different ways those beliefs can impact on the rights of others is really important. And when I think about this as a children's social worker, um, I think about a case where a child needed a blood transfusion, but parents' deeply held religious, religious beliefs didn't allow for that. Um, and in that case, the court was asked to make a judgment in the best interest of the child, putting aside the parents' rights to do so temporarily. And so as a social worker in such case, in, in that kind of case, we need to be really mindful of the strong emotions and the distress that these types of conflicts cause, because it's a matter of competing rights, which is something the social workers are balancing all the time. And making that sound and fair and principled decision is really difficult. And for me, the critical behaviours here were to make sure that everyone had a voice, that no one person acted alone and that the power imbalance between the adult and the child and the impact of those beliefs on the child's safety was all taken into account. Um, and just quickly before, I know I'm raving here, Jerry, but I find this really interesting, actually. Um, <laughs> for me, the second test that the, where the belief must also be worthy of respect in a democratic society and not affect other people's fundamental rights um, is also very helpful for social workers to hold in mind. Can people hold their beliefs and not and act not act in a way that is detrimental or denigrating to others? Because as social workers, as I said, we're trying to understand the impact of certain actions or beliefs on individuals and those around them. And we're trying to think about and limit any harm that would flow from, from that. And that actually requires us to be very sophisticated in our thinking and to peel back layers of what a person says, how that relates to what they do, and then the consequences of those actions, both to themselves and others. So it's not enough for us to form a judgment about it, because the most important part of the work is how we support others to come to a place where they're able to flourish. 
and contribute to support their community to do the same thing. So we're trying to help people untangle their beliefs and religion and their action and ensure they're respected and respectful at the same time. And I think that this is really important in social work because it ha we offer, it, social work happens in places and spaces that are contested or where rights are being infringed or where people are experiencing being marginalised or othered. And so this means our conversations by nature are actually quite grave and profound. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of things I just want to pick up on that, from that, actually. The first one is around this idea of blind spots, um, which I was reflecting on when I was out on my bike this morning. I do a lot of critical reflection on my bike and thinking, yeah, one of my potential blind spots is the religion that I happen to hold, which I think I understand and therefore probably would extrapolate or make assumptions about what other people might mm. think about it or how they might live um, or what beliefs they might hold. And actually reflecting that amongst all the people that I know who are Catholic, we all live our lives out you know, in very, you know, in different ways, diverse ways. Um, and also there will be people for whom that kind of cultural um, identity as they were growing up has then become something that they would maybe re react against. So try not really understand the dangers, I suppose, of, of a blind mm -hmm. spot where you think you know something. <laughs> so that was, mm -hmm. I was thinking about that for myself. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to pick up on um, was this idea of how people act on their beliefs and where social workers would actually, what our business is really, you know, because we don't, we're not policing people's beliefs. We're not right. interested in kind of peering into people's heads. So why is it that we need, that we want to or need to understand what people hold sacred, you know, what mm -hmm. they consider to be important um, and what's spiritual to them. And I think it is, it's partly, a human to human relational thing. This is really sort of significant stuff if we're trying to build a relationship with people. Um, it is about us avoiding our own um, potential to, to harm or to, to discriminate or to um, trample on something that people hold really, really mm. sacred. Um, and it is about understanding how people, as you say, about how people thrive and how they would want to live their lives and what brings them that sense of more than existence, mm. which I think spirituality kind of encompasses as an idea. And that might be um, following a particular practice. Um, it might be going to a forest. You know, it might be spending time with a cat. You know, we, we don't know what it is that sort of helps mm. people transcend their human, their day-to-day -day kind of mundanity, I suppose, mm. that we all face as well. Um, but understanding that, of course, means that you can you would or having a glimpse of that would help you really understand how you could empower someone or work with someone in a, in a much richer way I think. It's also about what we won't live without Jerry because for me um, these deeply held beliefs that we all have whether they're spiritual or religious or you know as you say a coherent belief um, a set of beliefs about the environment these these are the things that we hold closest to us and at the end of the day, when you're working with a social worker, you're often in a place and a space where you're perhaps having to compromise or give things up or you're struggling to get something. So there's there's some kind of um, 
difficulty <laughs> with with resources and wellness or other things that you're trying to tackle and you come to a place where you have to say well what can't I live without what can't I compromise on what matters to me so much that I can't actually live without it and they're often they're often beliefs they're, they're often religious things. They're often, they're sometimes quite intangible until you're, they're pushed against you. Do you know what I mean? And then you kind of like go, oh, I couldn't do that. And then you have to think, well, why couldn't I do that? And then you trace yourself back into, oh, because actually at my bedrock, I have this set of beliefs. And I think for us, you know, you think about it when you're trying to help somebody work out where they can live safely. And, and feel well, understanding those bedrocks is really important, isn't it? Yeah, and it's where we can inadvertently rub up against indirect discrimination. I think most social workers would, um, you know, through our, through our education, through our critical reflection, we would have some likely success at avoiding direct discrimination, you know, actually treating someone worse or pressing someone mm. directly because of a religion or belief. But indirect discrimination where you um, have a way of doing things that works for some people but doesn't work for others because of a religion or belief, mm. um, that's more possible. Um, yes. And that's something you know, that you can, can actually happen without you realising. You, know, you can arrange for, say, in my field, um, a residential care home that that actually doesn't, meet that that bedrock of what people's um day-to-day -day life needs to, to be able to, to to have in it or to you know how mm. people need to live or how people need to experience the world um i was thinking about it that indirect discrimination um just in in terms of um employment officers and teams and i was thinking you know if a team has a habit of always going to a certain place to eat or drink when they socialise, that could inadvertently be a real barrier for somebody, couldn't it? Because if your beliefs restricted you from being able to eat that food that's being served, you kind of have a number of choices, particularly if you're joining an established group. You know, you can go out and not eat, which can make you stand out. You can not go out, which will leave you out. You can tell people you can't eat the food because of your beliefs and face the reactions and in the best of worlds the outcome would be a discuss the outcome of the discussion would be an agreement about to vary where you went so people were able to have their preferences and others could experience something new but I was kind of reflecting on strong office cultures and environmental and those kind of things and I was thinking we often don't get as far as having those conversations do we people just kind of drift along or they don't but you, you don't always as curious as you could be perhaps about why people aren't joining or what barriers you're accidentally putting in place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think um, you know, being able to talk about these things is quite tricky, isn't it? Um, mm. You know, it's maybe in, in your sort of social work education, you do a module on ethics and values and you might be encouraged to talk about some of these things although I have to say when I was at university studying social work there were things that I wasn't ready to talk about to, to you know to fellow students um, 
and and in work too you know there's there is that kind of constant balance of what you share of yourself and what you don't and how you how you talk well about these things what you expect people to talk about um how are you respectfully listen how you might challenge where you need to you know it's, it's a lot to this isn't there there is and I think that that you're touching on something there first of all people being ready and comfortable to share this type of thing because these deeply held beliefs are often the most private thing we have and but the other thing is we don't always make them explicit to ourselves that was one of the things that I think I, I learned through my social work degree when they did ask all those types of questions and I would be like, what on earth are you asking? And, and I don't even know how to answer them. You know, like I, I kind of felt a bit outraged in a way that I had to dig so deep. But, um, you, you know, I, I kind of came to a place for myself where I thought, okay, well, I think that the spirit that, that everyone has a kind of spiritual element to them even if they don't explore it. Um, you know, so spirituality involves a recognition of a feeling or a sense or a belief that there's something greater than yourself, something more to being human than just the kind of sensory experience, or you said the mundanity, which I like that, you know, the, the everyday what's in front of you, um, and something that's kind of a greater whole of which we might be part of which is kind of, or you can use divine or, you know, something else that's out there. Um, and if you kind of think about yourself as a spiritual being, I think that there's lots of people who would step away from that even as a concept, but to have a conversation about it. Isn't there a joke that you shouldn't talk about uh, religion or war over dinner? Is that right? Or yeah. politics, <laughs> which are the three most fascinating things in the world to talk about. But um, I found this really uh, interesting little kind of set of questions um, to help you think about spirituality. And I thought these were interesting. The first one is, am I a good person? And I thought that was really interesting. That's such a loaded question, isn't it? Because what's good? And so then you have to work out, well, what does good mean to me? And that once again steps into all of those beliefs that you hold. And then the next question was, what is the meaning of my suffering? And this, I thought, was an interesting question as well, because we all do suffer. You know, all, all, all human life contains experiences of suffering and distress, and we need to learn how to manage them. Um, and that kind of why me question why not you but so yeah do you do you need to have a meaning when you suffer or do you or is it just you know something that happens to you and then the third one was what is my connection to the world around me and I thought that was interesting as well because you can think about that as you know like the world as in nature and humanity or you can think about it as your social world or your community. So there's all sorts of different ways to think about that question. Um, do things happen for a reason? You know, uh, what what do you think about that? And then the last question, which I which I really like, and I guess if I had to say, is there a question that matters to me out of these five questions? Number five is the thing I think most about, which is how can I live my life in the best way possible? 
And I really like that question because I have to then define what the best way is. So I have to articulate. And remember when we talked at the beginning that you had to have a, a coherent and kind of structured set of beliefs. I think these questions can kind of help you tease that out of yourself. Because if you don't belong to a religion that does that for you, and there are many religions that offer you a structure, and that's one of the attractions, I think, um, then perhaps if you want to be spiritual, you then have to create that structure for yourself and tease it out. And so I did think that, that some of these questions were, were helpful um, in helping tease that out of yourself and helping you articulate your beliefs for yeah. yourself. Because you will have beliefs. Um, but yeah, figuring out a little bit what those are and figuring out how they then relate to the beliefs that you come in into contact with, where there's synergy or where there's, you know, kind of they, they, there's friction and how you work with all kinds of people holding all kinds of beliefs. Uh, mm. It's really significant. And one of the reasons that, um, that I love end of life social work or palliative care social work is because it really deliberately engages with this. I just want to talk about that a little bit because I think it gives us quite a useful window onto practice. Um, so within end of life social work and palliative care, there's always this sense of psychosocial um, and spiritual together. So those those elements all, all together. Um, and that's because what social workers tend to bring to that is beyond the sort of physical, um, you know, care of the body and the, the illness um, but thinking much more broadly about I guess people's existential um, needs you know how are they managing the fact that human life is 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 boundaries is finite um, is changing um, and how how do you make sense of being seriously ill um, and so there's a really useful resource um, around the role of social workers in palliative end of life and bereavement care. And it says about palliative care social workers that they're interested in the psychological, emotional, social, cultural and spiritual dimensions of people's lives, because we believe that all those areas shape the way they think and feel and what matters to them. And that includes how they would experience pain and distress, um, how they would experience um, a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. Um, and that those dimensions shape the way people build life experience, resilience and peace of mind. Um, and it's about supporting people to live as well as they can, whatever that might mean to them. Mm. Um, and quite often people start to really um, dwell on and think about, think deeply about their spiritual side um, and what meaning life has when they're in a crisis. Um, and end of life is what is one of those times when you think there's change or there's crisis or there's those points of um, evolution when people would think deeply about this. And so it's really valuable to have a social worker. But there's other times where I think you know, we've talked about being alongside people in some of the most significant moments of their life. That's one of the things that social workers do. And you know, one of the privileges that we have and in those significant moments, I would think that that's that is an opportunity for people to think about meaning about those questions that you've just asked what a good life is how they want to live their life um, and it all starts with being prepared to have a conversation about what matters to people um, and maybe being ready to to prompt people because as you say it's deeply personal so in some mm -hmm. of the practice tools that 
have been developed around talking to people at end of life. There's there's things about you using prompts, using um, openings, listening beyond what people are saying to why they mm. might be saying it, really trying to understand um, what's behind, how people are responding. Um, and, and, and yeah, that simple question of you know, what what's important to you right now gives you so much insight into um, yeah into how people want to want to live. Mm. And I think for me, I mean, I, I just I love that framework. I think it's beautiful. Um, just thinking about the psychological, emotional, social, cultural, and spiritual dimensions of a person. I think for me, that's that that is so holistic. And it just makes sure that you get all the richness of a person. But one of the things that you have to be prepared for, I think, is that perhaps they haven't been asked questions like this before. And so, therefore, they need space and time to think about it for themselves as well. So the what's important to you, you might get quite a kind of on-top answer to begin with. And then it might be as you're working with somebody more and you revisit that question or you might even be able to reframe it because I like the way you said that you go beyond listening um, into that real observing and meaning making. And so then you can turn back to the person and say, can I just offer you some observations about what I've seen over our time working together? I'm wondering if this thing that you do or this thing that you say is something that also brings meaning to you or you know because we we sometimes you can sometimes see through people's behavior things that they're demonstrating are meaningful that perhaps they're not even aware of so there's something about having those lovely rich conversations and doing that kind of um observing and listening and reflecting and allowing people space and time to get to know themselves because we get very busy don't we jerry we get, we, yeah. you know, we get so busy, we, we, we kind of don't have meaningful conversations with ourselves sometimes. And the meaning is led by the person. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, there's no, I'm just thinking you know, there might be people for whom, for example, stoicism and silence on an issue might be there, mm -hmm. the way that they make sense of it and the meaning that yeah. they make. And then that's respected in the same way as if they wanted to yeah. do something or say something. You know what I mean? It's kind yeah, of. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You don't, it, it, the expectation isn't that everybody will suddenly develop a coherent, um, you know, uh, framework for expressing their spirituality or their religion and that that's the proper and right thing to do. That's exactly right. For some people, their comfort will come in, as you say, being stoic, being silent. Yeah. Being private. Yeah, and and that's an important part of ensuring that we're not pushing, that we're giving space for everybody to have those beliefs as long as those beliefs are not oppressive or harmful. And I think that that's one of the key things here as social workers as well when we're encouraging people to explore their own beliefs and to, you know, kind of share them there will be times when we might encounter um, beliefs that are oppressive or harmful to others. So, for example, anti-Jewish or anti-Muslim beliefs or religious beliefs that oppress other people. And when we 
come across them, actually. Our code of ethics say really clearly that we have a responsibility to challenge oppressless oppression on any basis, you know, and that includes, but it's not limited to age, capacity, civil status, class, culture, disability, ethnicity, right through to spiritual beliefs. So it's really important that we also understand, um, going back up to the Equality Act, when somebody's beliefs are actually um, not what we would want to have in a democratic society um, and that we're able to say, actually, this is, this, this is not okay. These, these things are, it's, it's not all right to say, think or act in these ways for these reasons. Yeah, and we will um, come into contact with people who hold beliefs that harm or oppress others. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, social work goes beyond the latter of the law um, in in terms of our expectations around challenging that. But I think the the really crucial thing is to go back to that word of respectful um, mm -hmm. and respect. You know how you challenge, um, and also you know, you've used the word curiosity, haven't you? Understanding why people might hold a um, a belief that goes beyond an opinion. So I suppose that, that also that, but the difference between a belief and an opinion is quite interesting here because I think generally I would say that an opinion is something that somebody holds that you can engage with as an opinion. You, know, you can you say, well, mm. my opinion is this though, and you can have a discussion about that. And um, a belief is, is deeper and it's more bound up with identity. So the way in which you challenge it has to be really carefully thoughtful mm. about not undermining the person's innate dignity as a person um you know their mm. innate human dignity um and i i was pointed um signposted to a really helpful resource by a colleague recently from the fabian society which is um called counterculture how to resist the culture wars and build 21st century solidarity and that resource is talking about how culture war issues things that are kind of you know, beliefs that are weaponized in a way are ones concerned with identity values and culture um, that therefore have an emotional uh, kind of response from people so they can engage people on an emotional level and can also enrage people mm. and they use the word enraging um, so in some countries that is very linked to religion it's probably less so in the United Kingdom but it yeah there are yeah there are beliefs that are put forward on social media, in popular conversation, in um, you know, in print media, on TV, all those kind of places, mm. Um, mm. in politics, that are about polarisation, um, and so they do they would take a sense of um, a belief that were tied up with the identity, and then use that to essentially undermine the dignity of someone else or, or of another group. Um, and that, you know, quite often those are sort of thought of as populist policies, aren't they? We've talked about populism before, where you um, you would appeal to um, people's emotion to think badly or act adversely against another group. Well, you're providing people with a focus, aren't you? That's that's the whole problem with with this whole idea of yeah, the, the culture wars. I like that, but it, what it does is it provides people with a focus for their distress difficulties um dissatisfaction etc cetera, etc cetera. and that focus is usually on on a group 
um, of, of, mar- of people who then become marginalised. Yeah. And it's an issue for us as social workers because we want to uphold everyone's human rights and yeah. anything that says you, know, you can only... Um, you know, that, that appeals to a group of a group of people by attacking another group's rights mm. is a is a real problem. Um, and you know, we have the kind of counter argument that you know, my rights, everyone's rights, are upheld by respecting other people's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Fabian Society talk about how you might um, challenge these kind of, this kind of rhetoric that there is around. Um, and first thing is around setting out a vision of the future that is for everybody. So this mm-hmm. idea of you know, everybody's rights being bound up together. Mm-hmm. Um, renewing democracy, which is around making sure that um, everyone is engaged in choices about what kind of society we live in. And then calling it out when there's this division being put forward, when people are trying to polarise you and saying, well, actually, I don't want to enter into that. I don't think it's helpful. Um, and then building social movements that are inclusive. Um, so if you are an activist or campaigner, I would argue that social workers always are. You know, as a group of, of social workers, as a profession, we can model that kind of inclusivity, but also um, advocate for it. Um, and um, yeah, there's lots of actual individual power as well that people might have as a voter, as a consumer, um, as a, you know, someone who maybe uses social media, you know, what we buy into, what we use, what platforms we engage with, those kind of things. Um, can be really powerful too. Yeah, it's it is it is about us making sure that we're quite aware um, of the messages that are coming in, and as you say, what's motivating people, what's informing them, um, and always taking opportunities to offer people kind of good quality information. I think is a part of this as well. Um, and I was when you were talking there, I was thinking particularly about um, when um, asylum seekers are placed in areas that perhaps haven't had many migrants or haven't had um, people, different people in their populations before, and some of the fear and some of the um, disinformation that can be shared at that time, and that can really make people um, act in very negative and discriminatory ways and and the role social work has in communicating well with all people and listening to their fears and then addressing them and also challenging them properly um when when they say things that are that are not true yeah yeah so i think you social work it could be thought of as a social movement that is about an inclusive society. And so both individually and collectively, we have that opportunity to understand the diversity of human beliefs Mm. um, and practices, but also look for those things that unite people and the common ground um, and the common humanity and kind of try and um, respond to that always and have that at the forefront of our minds. And that's why reflection in social work is so important, isn't it? Because actually we have to understand the importance of our own beliefs first and we have to be able to articulate them um, and also to understand when they bump up against other people's and how we resolve that. Um, And I think that that means that we have to be very mindful of our own religious or spiritual or other beliefs 
you know, yeah. that kind of has to be at the more at the front of our mind, perhaps, than it is at other people's. Yeah, and a, and a fair amount of humility is needed as well, I think. So just, I was just thinking about what I was saying. You know, I do think social work has this amazing potential, but you know, we social workers are, you know, no more perfect than anyone else. No. And, and, and sometimes, actually, this is what I was thinking as you were saying it, is that a lot of what we've talked about today takes a huge degree of kind of self-literacy, really. You've got to really know yourself and be thinking about yourself and be able to articulate your values. And a lot of that takes time. And one of the things with our profession is the tension between task and purpose, really, and how sometimes that gets so out of whack, yet the purpose should be guiding the task the whole time. But I think that sometimes the task guides the purpose and, and we just get so busy that actually we can't always articulate um, our own belief system as well as we as well as we would want to and therefore we can't see when we're responding to people because of our belief system rather than because of what the work asks us to do or what the other person needs and so I think that's a real risk for us as a profession when do where do we have the time and the space to actually think about our own beliefs think about other people's engage with other people and and really manage that work well yeah there's a triangle there isn't there joe of the social work values and beliefs our own personal ones and other people's yes. to kind of think about how they interact yeah. 